the children are dismissed for children's church. So if you are up through uh, grade four, you are, this is your opportunity to uh, leave and do the children's ministry. The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter one. We're going to spend some more time in Jonah chapter one this morning. Again, I hope you understand that Jonah from last week is not just a story about a big fish that swallows a prophet. Um, and even though that is a miracle and it testifies to the sovereignty of God and his rule and reign and his, his plans for Nineveh as well as for Jonah as well as for the sailors, but also this book is um, multiple layers and it, and it speaks about issues of um, partisanship. It, it speaks about anger and, and hatred and, and folly and, and fleeing God. Like last week, we, we talked about what does it mean that we are prone to flee the Lord, that we are, we are prone to, to leave his presence, but also dismiss his word. Today, we're going to um, think about the idea of identity, because certainly Jonah talks about identity. Um, But before I read um, the word, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, you have given us your word so that we can understand who you are and what we are called to do. Father, our our catechism says that. The only rule that you have given us is found in your word, and Father, you you teach us. So Father, I pray that you would teach us in such a way that, that our love grows. Father, I pray that you would teach us in such a way that our identity is firmly rooted and even deepens in Jesus, that our union with Christ would be of vital importance in our life. So Father, would you help us? Father, help me as I preach, to preach clearly. For those who are listening, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bless them with an attentive heart, that they would listen And that you would do your will through the power of the Spirit as we open up your love letter to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord uh, from Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to focus in on the middle section though. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men who were exceedingly afraid said and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you 
that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, so when we think about identity, I think about this, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I, I was on the Air Force Base, and we have to go through a background check occasionally. And one of the things that we have to do is uh, we had to get fingerprinted, and I had to do a digital fingerprint, and I had to do a, um, uh, actually an ink fingerprint, because the state of Kansas actually requires that. And so, you know, my hands were all nasty, and, and certainly your fingerprints uh, reveal your identity. And I remember um, as we were, um, uh, the, the, uh, the major who was going through the background check, and there were three of us there, and he went to my, my buddy next to me, and he said, so, okay, tell me, um, well, what color are your eyes? Because obviously guys don't look into the eyes of other men and know what color they are. So he had to tell him, like, I have brown eyes. And he said, well, how tall are you? And he said, oh, I'm about six foot. And he goes, how much do you weigh? And the guy said, about 180 pounds. And the major looked over at him and went, really? <laughs> you know? And he said, hmm. So he got to me and he said, you know, okay, so, you know, Major Boomer, you know, Chaplain Boomer, uh, how, how tall are you? I'm like, oh, I'm like 6'2", you know? And he's like, how much do you weigh? I'm like, I'm like 185. He looked over at me and he went, man, you might be 6'2", wearing stilts, you know, and you might get on the scale with a helium balloon attached to you, but there's no chance that you're 185 and 6'2". You, know, you see, our, our identity, you know, it has to be found. And, and again, we, we need to know who we are. I mean, when you go to, you know, the, a passport or a driver's license to prove your identity, we see this, right? Um, so what type of credentials do I have, you know, that, that reveal to me my identity? You know, again, you, you can't cross a border. You can't get on a plane without showing or proving yourself of who you are. I had a good friend, Peter, at General Assembly, um, who was actually mugged in downtown Memphis, um, leaving Beale Street at like 1 a.m. He's an RUF director. And, and the biggest thing that he said was like, I, I don't mind my credit card. Yeah, I can always replace that. But I fly out tomorrow, and my license was in my wallet. And I'm not sure how I'm going to get on the plane in order to get back to Virginia to get back to my family. And so again, when we think about identity, uh, we, we think about what this means. Now, in the middle of the book of Jonah, you know, we see what Jonah says. Now, Jonah was asked the questions by the sailors, and we see this um, when, when the sailors come up to Jonah. And, and again, we could talk about this. I mean, there, there's so many different things that we could actually come to in the book of Jonah because it's so layered, and there's so many what you would call um, sections of Scripture that speak to other sections of Scripture. Because again, you know, you have a bunch of you know, dice-throwing pagan sailors who are casting lots to determine who might be the person that actually brought this ill upon you. If you're thinking about Old Testament trivia, the other person, there's one other place in the Old Testament where people are casting lots to determine where the evil befell the people of Israel is on. We read about that in the book of Joshua and Achan and his sin. 
But beyond that, once the lot actually fell upon Jonah, so the, these guys come to him and they ask this question, you know, because they want to know who he is. They say, you know, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, those are pretty typical questions. Like, where are you from? What do you do? What's the history behind you? Now, just for a second, if, you have, if you're taking notes, I want you to think about this. Or if you have a piece of paper, uh, it's a little assignment. You know, we're, we're just going to do this. Um, I want you to think about who you are. Who you are uh, as a person. And, and I want you to write the first three things that come up about you. The first three things. Just, just take a moment. I'm going to give you about you know, 10 seconds. Just write down three things that describe who you are. This is when I wish I had some Jeopardy music. We could pipe it in. We have enough technical problems today, so we're not going to try to do that. But just, I mean, three things. I mean, who are you? How do you describe yourself? All right. I gave you enough time. So these three things, oftentimes, when we think about them, you know, we also think about our identity in terms of what gives you joy or what gives you purpose in your life. What do you spend the best of your time doing or what do you spend your first fruits giving towards? Like what is the very best that you have? Or what, again, what gives you joy, what gives you purpose, all of those things. You see, in ancient times, uh, for the sailors, the reason they ask these particular questions is that um, in ancient times, every racial group, every place, and even every profession had its own god or gods. As a matter of fact, when you, when you look at this, when, they came, when they're talking about perhaps the god, when you look at verse 6, that is the generic term Elohim. Arise, call out to your God. You actually see that in your, in your Bibles uh, because the way that the Lord is, is referred to or the way that God is referred to, you'll see a capital um, L-O-R-D. Uh, like say, for example, down in verse 16 and 17, you see a capital L-O-R-D. That's referring to Yahweh. When we read the word God in our Bibles, right there, a generic one, arise, call out to your God, they're using the generic term Elohim. Now, to find out which deity, and again, they cast lots, you know, to find out that Jonah was the one who actually brought the sin upon them, this tempest, this tempestuous storm that occurred, um, they, all they had to do was ask um, who he was. To find out which deity Jonah had offended, they did not need to ask, what is your God's name? All they had to ask was who he was. In their minds, human identity factors were inextricably linked to what you worshiped. Who you were and what you worshiped were just two sides of the same coin. It was the most foundational layer of your identity. So they were asking because they wanted to know which God had, had been offended. You see, the, the, the sailors um, are, are, are true in this because everyone gets an identity from something, right? We get this. Let me, let me, let me quote Tim Keller here. Um, Everyone must say to himself or, or herself, I'm significant because of this. And I'm acceptable because I'm welcomed by them. But then 
whatever this is and whoever they are, these things become virtual gods to us. And the deepest truths about who we are, they become things we must have under any circumstance. That's what we're talking about in terms of identity. Now, um, when we think about those three things that you wrote down, I mean, what, what of those things, they give you significance or purpose? You see, in the Bible speaks about this in Genesis chapter 1, where it talks about that we were made in the image of God. So uh, back before the fall of man, before sin entered into anything, we were made after the image of God. And an image is always um, sort of reflecting what is true. Uh, Or there has to be an original for us to be made in the image of God. Okay, So we're talking about God in terms of all of his characteristics, in terms of his good attributes. And there can be no image without an original of which the image is a reflection. To be in the image means that human beings were not created to stand alone. We must get our significance and security from something of ultimate value outside us. To be created in God's image means we must live for the true God or we will have to make something else God and orbit our lives around that. Did you get that? Either we are worshiping God whose image we reflect, or we make other things gods around which our lives orbit around, right? Like, and I know, and and like, by the way, good on you for being here today. I mean, there's probably people who are sick and they're, they're watching online. That's okay. If you're sick, I, I totally understand. But, but it's cold, right? Like I, I almost took a picture of my, of my uh, thermometer when I was coming in this morning and it was like negative seven, negative eight. And I wanted to send it to my, 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 my family back in Virginia. Or, or, or actually what I really need to do is take a picture of that and send it to that sinner, Bill Vogler, who sent me a picture of him and Karen walking on the beach at 84 degrees this week. And he's like, oh, had a great time on the beach, 84 degrees, hope you guys are well, stay warm. And I'm like, thanks, Bill. Thanks for heaping it on, man. So, but as, as, we, as we think about, you know, the, the idea for us is, you know, what gives us significance? You know, what gives us, you know, purpose we think about all of these things to be made in the image, we're, we're asking, who are you? Or, or, or we're asking, whose are you? To know who you are is to know what you have given yourself to. Now again, that little exercise that I did, you know, when you think about those three things that, that give you purpose and meaning or value, there's an aspect of, have I given myself to these things? I mean, this is why... Uh, for example, uh, many people who are out there, they might say, you know, if you're, if you're a dad or a mom, you may say that one of the identifiers for me is mother and father. You're a mother or father, right? Well, the difficulty comes when, when we make our identity wrapping ourselves up in our children is what happens when you have something called the empty nest and you no longer have these children whose identity you have wrapped yourself up in. And, it be, and now, I mean, I'm saying this because this is kind of where I'm living, right? But when we make um, 
these priorities, and again, I'm not saying children are a bad thing, that we should love our children and and give ourselves self-sacrificially to our children, but when our identity becomes inextricably linked to them, and then our children leave, then all of a sudden we become identity-less or (laughs) identity-light, as it were. Um, In the same way, uh, the other thing that happens is, um, and I've seen this a ton in the military, but it's not only in the military, uh, when someone retires from an occupation that they've had for, say, 30, 40, 50 years, and then they don't know who they are anymore because their identity is wrapped up in their job. And and many of you might have said, like, you know, like I'm a a teacher or I'm a... um, I don't know, a, a doctor, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this or I'm that, or I'm a lawyer. I mean, like, I mean, some of those things in terms of who you are. Yes, they do describe you, but, but when we allow our identity to be wrapped up in these things and then we lose them, then we're kind of stripped bare and we're, we're left, you know, really listless. Um, now, notice what Jonah says. I want to go back. Go back to Jonah chapter, chapter 1. So again, you know, they're asking these questions. In verse 9 of, of, of the book of Jonah, chapter 1, he, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, this is fascinating right here, because he doesn't begin with the Lord. He actually uses a term saying, I am a Hebrew. Now, initially, we might look at that and go, okay, that's fine. I mean, Hebrews were the nation of Israel, right? Like, we get that. But when you look at the Bible, when somebody describes themselves uh, as a Hebrew, really, um, the p- people of Israel are described as Hebrews in the book of Exodus. That's what the Egyptians call the people of Israel. They call them the Hebrews. People don't call themselves a Hebrew throughout the Bible, But for some reason, Jonah actually, before he talks about who he worships, he wants to give the the sailors an an understanding of his national ethnicity. And what he's saying there is this. I think this is totally true. Again, let let me quote Tim Keller. If his race was more foundational to his self image than his faith, it begins to explain why Jonah was so opposed to calling Nineveh to repentance. Again, he calls himself a Hebrew. He wants to identify himself nationally before he identifies the God whom he fears. The prospect of calling people of other nations to faith in God would not be appealing under any circumstance to someone with this spiritually shallow identity. Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his significance as his race That is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict, he chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to a new society. Unfortunately, many Christians today exhibit the same attitudes. This is not merely the result of a poor education or cultural narrowness. Rather, their relationship with God through Christ has not gone deep enough into their heart. Do you get that? Like, it's not that our identity is misplaced. It's that our identity in Christ needs to grow deep, tap roots so that we are rooted. And, and, and again, in what Isaiah calls oaks of righteousness. That's what we want to be. We don't want to be 
moss or something that has a shallow root that can be ripped up, but we want to deepen our roots in terms of who our identity is in Christ. Of course, you know, just as in Jonah's life, God and his love is not their identity's most fundamental layer. And again, I'm quoting Keller here. Of course, race is not the only thing that can block the development of a Christian's self-understanding. For example, you may sincerely believe that Jesus died for your sins, and yet your significance and security can be far more grounded in your career and financial worth than in the love of God through Christ. Again, what Jonah says is, I am a Hebrew, meaning I am from this nation, and this is what gives me significance. And by the way, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But here's the irony in the book of Jonah. Does he really fear the Lord? Because when your your profession and your practice don't match up, you're you're what we call a hypocrite. Because it sure doesn't seem like Jonah fears the Lord. It doesn't seem like he wants to do the will of God in his life. He doesn't want to do the hard thing that God has called him to do. And I'm not dismissing that what Jonah was given was not just a a monumental task, a huge ask, a very difficult journey to Nineveh. And yet at the same time, he turns and flees the word of God and the presence of God. But it's this this shallow identity, thinking that our ethnicity is the most important thing about us. So let let me me ruffle some feathers feathers here, um, just because it's fun sometimes, all right? I mean, like, Christian, the most important thing about you is Jesus. Everything else. If, if, If on that little list, the three things that you identified as the things that identify you, if Jesus isn't at the top, then those other things may be getting in the way. And what I mean by that is they may be really, really good things. It may be um, your spouse. It could be your children. You may have a wonderful career. All of those things are God-given gifts, but those things can actually cause us to not deepen our roots in our identity with Christ. And so my question for you is how shallow are your roots today? And again, you know, it ebbs and flows, right? I mean, it ebbs and flows for, for me as well. Like there are days when I'm like, man, I am rooted in Christ. And there are many days where I am rooted in the world, just rooted in the things of the world. Um, you know, again, I, I, I want us to think about this. I want us to deepen our identity in Christ. I want you to know this about being in Christ, that when you are in Christ, when you believe and trust in Jesus, that he has you know, died for your sins and that being united to him, this is what it means. It means that I am declared righteous. It means that I am clean, that I am a part of the family of God, that I am reconciled to God, that I have been bought with the blood of Jesus, that I am free to follow Jesus, not my sins anymore, that I am born again to a new life in Christ. I can see, I'm no longer blind, but I can see and understand the promises of God and the beauty of God. 
and I am bound, and this is the last one, that I am bound for the promised land. When we sing like on Jordan's stormy banks, that I am bound for an eternal, you know, glorious existence with, with Jesus himself, my elder brother, my prophet, priest, and king, my savior, my friend. To be in Christ affords us to think about and to you know, really understand all of those promises. And I want those promises, they're like fertilizer for us fertilizer force that deepens the roots so that we can grow. Now, the, the issue with Jonah is um, look at where Jonah is headed. Now, God calls him to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but rather he wants to go to this place called Tarshish. Okay. Now, Tarshish, let me, we got to deep, just dive deep into the idea of where Tarshish is. Nineveh, if you're in Israel, it's sort of to the northeast, about 500 miles. Tarshish, we're not really sure exactly where it is, but it's somewhere on the coast of Spain or France uh, that ships would go back and forth to. But Tarshish, and I want, I want you to see this, because you see it in verse 3, you see it in verse, um, you see it twice in verse 3, um, where that's where Jonah goes to, actually maybe, maybe three times. And, and here's where Tarshish where it represents. It represents a place where people search for heaven on earth. It is a place where people are trying to recreate the Garden of Eden for themselves. And here's what I mean by that. Throughout the Bible, there's about maybe 26 instances where this place Tarshish is given to us. About 26 places. And what's interesting about this is, let me... Let me um, let me try to make my case for why Tarshish is sort of this idea of a place where people are trying to form their identity. Um, in the book of um, First Kings, um, here's where we see Tarshish as a place. And this is King Solomon, right? This is actually, it, initially this looks like a really good thing. Let me, let me just read this. I'm in First Kings uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Um, it ta- it's talking about kings, um, King Solomon He says, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought him presents of articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so whatever, right? Now initially, when you look at this, you're like, well, that seems like Tarshish is actually a good thing. That it's actually a good thing that Solomon sends his boats out by Hiram to bring back all of these things. But... But here's the problem. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, and you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, I'm going to show you this. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this. When you, I'm starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers. You shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay, so all of that. That, that all speaks to one day that Saul, then David, then Solomon, right? No, no problem yet, right? But then look at verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives. Anybody know how many wives Solomon had? For himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So what we see is that Solomon, in sending ships out to Tarshish to bring back gold and silver and apes and peacocks, and I can't remember what else, you know, whatever. You know, I don't know what your peacock might be, right? I mean, but that's what we're seeing, is that you know, Moses is actually saying, like, don't do these things. Because when you begin to do these things, what you're trying to do is recreate Eden here on earth. What you're trying to do is you're trying to create a godless paradise, so the, so the thing about Tarshish, and we see this, uh, again, let me just, um, we, we also see in um, Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 23, where we actually see an oracle against Tyre, an, an oracle against Tyre, but also against Tarshish, that the ships of Tarshish, oh, weep and wail, O oh, ships of Tarshish, because Tyre has fallen. Where are you going to go? So essentially, Tarshish is not a positive place, but rather it is a place. And so when you're reading the book of Jonah and you recognize that Jonah is fleeing the word of the Lord, but also the presence of the Lord, where is he going? He's going to the, the, the rational place known as Tarshish so that he can create a world unto himself because his identity is wrapped up in who he is. Now, I don't know what your Tarshish is. It could be all types of things. But what I will say is that when we pursue and are traveling to Tarshish, we are not deepening our roots in our Christian identity. When I think about, um, let me, again, I'm just going to quote one more time Tim Keller from his book, The Prodigal Prophet, because it's so good. He says this, he says, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. That is sobering, isn't it? Because brothers and sisters, we don't want to be greedy materialists or addicted to beauty and pleasure. We don't want to be people filled with racist tendencies or partisanship or filled with anxiety and overwork. We don't want any of that. But rather, we want to deepen our understanding of who we are in Christ, in his love for us, in the promises that he has given us. And we want to eradicate all of that. And we want to call our other brothers and sisters who struggle with this to a deeper identity in Jesus. Now, 
Um, the road to... Um, <laughs> we see that Jonah is helped out by the Lord. Now, uh, one of the things that... This is a, a mother's prayer for all of her children. actually comes from Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. I don't know if you know this or not. Um, but in Numbers, Moses actually says... You will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Anybody pray that? That their children's sin would actually find them out? Nobody actually ever prays about their own sin finding themselves out. We always pray that our children, we would find out our children's sin in the midst of this, right? And what happens in the midst of this, it is discipline that the Lord brings, you know, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the discipline of the Lord. For, for what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? And so what we find is that the Lord hurled a great storm upon Jonah. And this great storm comes, and we, and we read about this in, in verse 4, but the Lord, Yahweh, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo out. So there's this, this idea that this great storm, now there, there's this Hebrew um, wordplay here because it talks about Jonah going to the great city of Nineveh, but because he wouldn't go to the great city of Nineveh, now he has to go through the great storm of Yahweh. That's what we find. And so what happens is in the midst of this is that the Lord actually brings about discipline or difficulty or struggle so that Jonah might understand his purpose and his identity in Yahweh. Yeah, the um, Derek Kidner actually says this. He says, sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown. Now, the... The dismaying news in this is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. This is one of the great themes of the Old Testament in the Proverbs is that in the midst of you know, wickedness and disobedience is that God actually brings a storm to bear. But we have to be careful. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin, but it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up like they did for Jonah, right? Storms, they can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control in us that nothing else can. And innumerable people have testified that they found faith in Christ and eternal life only because of some great storm dri driving them toward God. I mean, we see this. So how God works through storms, nevertheless, as hard as it is to discern God's loving and wise purposes behind many of our trials and difficulties, it would be even more hopeless to imagine that he has no control over them at all. You think about this, that, that God actually brings about storms in your life. Now, now, sometimes, like the sailors, you get wrapped up in the storms of other people, right? And sometimes your own sin is a storm unto itself, and that God brings a storm in the midst of your own sin, sometimes the, the, the storm comes later. As a matter of fact, oftentimes I think about you know, sin and, and our proclivity to sin is sort of like um, a sunburn, right? Like you don't know the, the moment you get sunburned. You just know later on that night, you're like, why is my skin hot? And why does this hurt so bad? 
And it's because the exposure to sin has now burned you. And again, we might actually get wrapped up in sin thinking that sin is fun. Sin is great. And then you know, the, the pathway to addiction is, is a fun roller coaster straight down until you hit rock bottom. Or let me, let me, use, a, let me use a playful one, okay? My dad was a firefighter uh, in Virginia Beach for about 30, 30 plus years. Um, at one point, he was actually stationed at a fire station, and he was stationed next to, get this, a Krispy Kreme donut shop. It's a glorious place for any firefighter, police officer, or really any human being to be placed, right? I mean, all of them probably had diabetes very soon, um, but you know, they were placed next to a Krispy Kreme, and they would give these firefighters, because firefighters are, are heroes, quote unquote, you know, they probably start more fires than they put out, but anyway, you know, they would give them free donuts, Free donuts, free hot and, hot, hot, hot now donuts. And so one day, this one young firefighter says, I think I can eat two dozen of those. And they're like, no, you can't. He goes, oh, yes, I can. You know, because if you've had a Krispy Kreme hot and, and you know, hot, hot now donut, you know, it just kind of melts in your mouth, kind of like cotton candy, and you can just eat one. I mean, you can't eat just one, right? I mean, you eat one, you eat two, you eat three, you eat four. He's like, I can eat two dozen. So this guy, he says, you know, you can't. So they go and they get him two dozen donuts of Krispy Kreme free, you're hot now. He begins to eat these. First couple of donuts taste really good. And then by, you know, like the 12th donut, he like, but now he's, he's got to prove it, right? He's got to prove it to everybody of what kind of man he is, what kind of courage he has, what kind of fool he is, right? So he eats two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. True story, by the way. Two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. The problem, however, is that Krispy Kreme donuts, when they're hot now, the yeast continues to rise, so he has two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts in his belly and the yeast continues to rise and his stomach begins to expand because of all the donuts in his belly. At which point they have to put him on the ambulance and take him to the ER to have his stomach pumped because of the Krispy Kreme donuts in his stomach. Can you imagine telling your wife that? Honey, why are you in the hospital? I, uh, I don't know. Like, I was fighting a fire. Something fell on me. I ate two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. They expanded my stomach. I don't really know what's going on, right? You know, folly will bring about this storm. So again, when we think about the storms that occur, sometimes, you know, the, the pain, the, sometimes the pain is due to our own sin and our own folly. Sometimes the Lord will actually bring storms into our life to draw us back to himself. And many times, we don't even know why the storms happen until much, much later, if we ever know at all. We just don't know. In this case, we know because we, it says that the Lord hurled a storm. Now, when you look at this story, what's, what's amazing, though, is that in the midst of this, in the midst of the storms of life, notice what the sailors do. The sailors do what anybody else would do. In, in verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, or his Elohim, so they begin to use everything at their disposal to understand the storm that is going on. And, and in the midst of this, now remember, these are sailors bound for Tarshish, and they have cargo. Now, if you're a sailor, the cargo represents your livelihood. And so after they have called out to their false gods, and their false gods have not answered them, they do the next thing. They say, you know what? We're going to start hurling all of our livelihood out. We're, we're going we're to use every means at our disposal to undo this storm. Because maybe we can ride a little higher. Maybe we can just get rid of it, right? So they start get, getting rid of it. And, and really, the only thing, 
or the only person that can bring peace to this storm is Yahweh. So they expend everything. Matter of fact, what we find is they don't understand all of this. And, and Jonah actually says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, just in, in a similar way that they just hurled their cargo into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. But notice that these dice-throwing pagan sailors are reluctant to actually throw him into the sea. They actually don't want to do it. They're like, we don't want innocent blood on our hands because you might be guilty, but it's not our right to take a human life. It's amazing. These are pagan Tarshish or Joppan, you know, sailors, dice throwing, and yet their morality is greater than Jonah's. And they don't understand this. And they actually... I mean, this is almost prefiguring really Pontius Pilate who says, I don't know what to do with Jesus. He's innocent. I'm shaking. I'm washing my hands of this is what we see. And they actually say, you know, that, that so they, they didn't want this. And they said, oh, Lord. So what happens is in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this storm, these sailors begin to call on the name of Yahweh. Their identity goes from being wrapped up in their false gods to their fear, their their exceedingly great fear. They begin to cry out to Yahweh. Because again, we see this. It says, oh, they cry... Therefore, they called out to the Lord. I'm in verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Now, what's amazing about this story at this point, and we're still working our way through chapter one, is that the Lord uses rebellion to bring about his will. It's amazing. Like Jonah, Jonah's rebellion leads to the storm being brought to, and all of these men begin to cry out to Yahweh. Matter of fact, the Lord actually brings a storm about to bring repentance and faith, I think, to Jonah, albeit a small margin. We'll get there here in the subsequent weeks. But also the Lord uses a storm to bring Jonah to Nineveh. And again, we talked about the Assyrians last week to bring them to repentance. You know, the Lord uses storms to bring about his will, but he can also use the rebellion of his people at times. You see, the sailors represent the nations here. And again, Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. That's what defines me. And now all these pagan sailors who represent the nations are now worshiping the Lord. Again, when they worship in verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, we see that in the sovereign Lord of the universe is bringing about a storm in order to fulfill his purposes for the nations, for the nation of Assyria and Nineveh, and for the sailors who represent the world. God is sending the storm to get their attention and to reveal sin, to show up their false gods, and to see peace brought through a sacrifice that they don't understand. Because these guys don't get it. They're like, whoa, 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 Jonah, you want us to pick you up? You want us to throw you in the sea? And that's what's going to bring peace to the storm? That doesn't make any sense. In the same way, the disciples around Jesus were like, we don't understand how the cross is going to bring about the reconciliation of mankind. We don't understand. We don't understand how this sacrifice 
will calm the storm. All we know is that when we're with you, Jesus, you calm the storms. You see, in Jonah, Yahweh brought a storm to reveal his sovereign power and will. But in the New Testament, Jesus calms the storm. For what purpose? To reveal his sovereign power and will. And again, the will of God for those of us who trust and believe is that our identity would be wrapped up in Christ and that our identity would not be shallow but would be deep and connected. One of the ways that we get to be connected to one another is the table of the Lord. Because when we come forward, and, and, I, and I do love it when we get to come forward for communion, because what it's saying is that we are united to Christ and we are united to one another, that we are brothers and sisters of one family and we come together because we are in Christ. Child of God, if you want to deepen your roots in Christ, then this table is set for you. If you're feeling shallow right now, this is meant to fertilize your faith. This is meant to feed your souls. This table is meant for the people of God, for the children of God, those who recognize that they need and love and bow before Jesus as their Lord and Savior. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took this cup and he filled the cup with the fruit of the vine, with wine, we use grape juice. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And as we come to the table, we know that we are forgiven and that we are loved and that we are no longer dice-throwing pagan sailors, but rather we are the children of God who delight in his will. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have given us this, this table to unite us to Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come, that we would delight in all that you have given us. Father, that we would delight in your promises, that we would deepen our roots in Jesus, that we would understand that we are in Christ and that makes us your children. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not pursue Tarshish in any way. I pray that the things of this world that offer us identity, false identity, and false gods that we would throw off and that we would not identify ourselves with. But Father, I pray that as we come, that you would again strengthen our faith in you. So Father, may we feast with great joy. May we sing with, with great unction. And Father, may we, we come. And, and Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.